The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. The ESRI estimates that one in 30 adults in Ireland suffer from a problem gambling, uh, spending an average of €1,000 a month. However, a recovering gambling addict reveals in a new book that he gambled away nearly €1 million in the bookies and he was sentenced to prison for the cons that he pulled to feed his addiction. He's now been released from prison where he reflected on his actions and wrote a book, 100 to 1, subtitled The True Story of a Compulsive Gambler. Pat Sheedy, good morning and welcome. Morning, Pat. Thank you. Um, Tell me how it all began. I mean, can you remember placing your first bet? I can. The first bet that had a big impact on me, I suppose, was when I was 15. I did a a 50 pence accumulator bet. And that means that all four of your choices have to win and the prices multiply as they go. And I got lucky and unlucky, I suppose, in that they did all win. And I won the princely sum of 51 pounds. My goodness. Which in 1984 to a 15 year old kid was... A lot of money. Ah, and the huge. idea for those not familiar with the accumulator, the first one wins, all that money goes on, the second one at whatever odds, and so on. And it builds and builds and, and builds. And it builds and builds. So you got a taste. Yeah. Now, did you have, do you think, an addictive personality anyway? In hindsight, probably, yeah. Um, but I suppose the one thing that I was able to find out, and I discovered this while I was in prison, and it took me a long time to discover it, was that gambling for me was a byproduct of other issues. Uh, self-esteem issues as a child, things like that. And gambling for me became my way of escape, my way of release. And like a drug addict would get a hit from heroin or an alcoholic from a whiskey, I got my hit from the solace of gambling and from the buzz that I got from it. I just now, Tell us how it progressed from that 50p accumulator, which won you a, a prince's ransom in those days. How did it develop? It snowballed very quickly. Very quickly. Um, well, I remember walking home that day with the, with the £51 in my pocket, not knowing what to do with it, not knowing how to explain it to my parents. Where did I get this money from? But the one thing that I did know was that I just there and then thought that this is going to be the way I was going to make my future. This is the way I'm going to live my life. And I automatically developed an air of arrogance and invincibility about the whole thing. And I genuinely thought that every time I put on a bet thereafter, I was going to have the same results. Now, how did your gambling then progress? I mean, through, throughout your school days, uh, yeah, I, what, what were you gambling on? Back then, you, you were limited in what you could gamble on, insofar as the betting shops only opened up for a few hours a day. There was no nighttime opening. So all my gambling then would have been on horse races and greyhounds. I was never one for casinos or card games or anything Did like you that. know anything about horses or dogs? Not at all, no. no. But, in my head, but in my head, I thought I did. You know? Now, you're a young fellow, quite clearly, uh, and you're going into the bookie shop. Did they ever ask you a question like, uh, you know, who's that for? Is it for your father or is your... You yeah, know? They, they did, but it was in passing. And, and as you have to realise as well that it was back in the 80s and times were very different. Yeah. Um, there was no such thing as a problem gambler back then. You know, um, most kids my age were often in the bookies putting on bets for their dads or whatever, so... There was never any there was no questions asked. There no awareness of it or no. questions asked. None. Now, uh, you, you start to gamble on, on pretty much uh, every dog and horse you, you come across. Pretty much. Um, where did you get the money to do it? Because clearly you were not winning all the time. No, I, I would have got a part-time job 
after school and at weekends, <clears throat> excuse me, selling advertising for a local newspaper. And then when that wasn't enough, I used my, my brain in wrong ways. I stole money from people. Started out maybe at home or telling lies to get money from my parents. And then when opportunities arose for me, I started to scheme and plot and I genuinely didn't care where I got it from as long as I had the money for that next bet. Because in my head, even if I stole from you, I'd be able to go to a bookies, place that bet, win money and repay you immediately. So, you And did you ever do that? I mean, did you ever actually have a lucky win and now you have the money and you borrowed a fiver or, you know, surreptitiously took a fiver from somebody? Did you ever put that money back? Yeah, quite you a did. lot. Quite a lot. And a lot of my criminal convictions, you'll find that I did repay the money. But that still doesn't excuse things that I did. It doesn't excuse my behaviour. How did it progress there from there on? From there on, I suppose it just, it, it did have a hold of me up to the point where I was 22 and I was in trouble and facing a prison sentence. What had you done and how was it detected? Uh, I had been working for a company that was providing housing and things like that and I had a job as a fundraising collector for them. Um, I collected money. I only handed over a certain amount of it. They twigged and they reported me and I was taken to court. Uh, the judge then told me that he was going to sentence me to 15 months and I was only 22. Um, back then, and, and the, way the, the way the courts work is if you're sentenced in the district court, you don't automatically go to prison. You have the right to appeal. So I appealed immediately and stayed out. And while I stayed out, I went to a treatment centre in Ennis and... I have to be honest, I, I went to the treatment centre for the wrong reasons. I, I went to get a letter of recommendation from say them. You were to say you were behaving yourself. behaving myself, yeah. And I got that letter and I went back to the judge on appeal and he gave me a chance. But I took the chance, you know, I didn't have a bet for 12 years from 1991. So uh, you had a narrow escape, a narrow squeak, um, and you got away with it because, as you say, your motivation was not the right motivation in getting the cert, but it worked. Um during that period, were you tempted? Initially, no. I was. I had a fear of it. I had a, a loathing of, of gambling. I I did a lot of the things that I was told to do in the treatment centre. I, I went to aftercare for two years. I religiously went to Gamblers Anonymous meetings. I surrounded myself with people that were good people. And I had a good life, I'd say, for maybe 10 of those 12 years. And then... A relapse happened. Now, yeah. talk to me about how your family regarded you. I mean, did they, if you like, medicalize your condition and say the poor lad has a problem, uh, it's an addiction problem, or were they ashamed of you? Uh, they were probably ashamed of the things I did. I don't think yeah. they were ashamed of me, but they were ashamed of my actions, and I don't blame them. Um, I brought a lot of bad publicity to their door. I brought people to their door looking for money that I owed. Um, it's no way to it's no way to treat your parents, but I don't think they had an understanding of gambling as an illness. Nobody did back then. Like I remember in 1991 when I went into that treatment centre, it wasn't open very long, and I was the thirteenth patient in the door, but I was the first for gambling. Yeah. And you know, people people genuinely couldn't comprehend how you could have a problem with gambling because there's no chemical or they think that there's no chemical buzz or no chemical hit from it but th that's that's not the case you know it's been proven subsequently since Now 
obviously deterrence worked in your case. I mean, you were so close to the prison gates and you managed not to go. And there was a fear, obviously, that you might end up behind bars if you resumed your former life. So um, at what point did that deterrence wear off and you were kind of weaned back onto it or was it a an overnight thing, one bet and you were no, back mean, at full pelt? Sub- subconsciously, I'd been probably preparing myself for it for a while. Um, I began to question whether or not I was actually addicted to gambling. I began to believe that Maybe I'm not addicted. Maybe I can control it because I did get huge enjoyment out of it. I mean, you know, there, there was a time where I really enjoyed gambling. I enjoyed the buzz. I enjoyed the races. I enjoyed everything that was around it. And I grew to miss that. Um, and I kind of grieved it and mourned it. And, and, and eventually, I suppose, I had been at a point where I was very successful in my job. I hadn't had a bet for 12 years. And I began to convince myself that I can control this if I try. Now, you ended up obviously being at the gates of the prison because you had, you know, taken the money, but also you needed that money to fund. So it suggests that you weren't winning, um, you know, an awful lot. But oh. there must have been periods when you were hmm. on a winning streak. Yeah, of course there was. But the, the thing about the winning streaks is they're great while they last, but they never last long if you're a compulsive gambler, insofar as your winnings won't last long. Like, I would have won... If I won a lot of money, I would never have treated myself to a holiday or bought myself something nice or whatever. Every penny of that would have eventually went back, back over in. the counter very quickly. Yeah, what I'm getting at is that when you look back on that period and you're, you're now uh, kind of recovering from it, you're avoiding going back to gambling. And I'm wondering, did you have any reflection, you know, at how much money had been forgone? You know, how, how much money you'd wasted, if you like. When, when you're in treatment, you, you do uh, a thing called a step four. It's part of the 12-step process where you do a, what they call a fearless financial and moral inventory of yourself and you look at everything and you look at the financial side of it. And that million euro that's mentioned in the cover of that book is tip of the iceberg stuff with me. It's significantly higher than, than that, you know, and I was, able to, I was able to judge that on the fact that I had a very good, well-paid job for over 20 years. I... And then there was the other things that went with it, such as the borrowings, the bank loans, and the cons, and the you know the stealing. All of that, I can accumulate well in excess of that million euros. Okay, the money conned and the money earned, which was not used for any productive purpose. No. So then your relapse, what happened? I remember putting on a bet, and it was the first bet I put on. It was a significantly larger bet than any bet I would have put on 12 years previously. So this was your first bet after that long period of non-gambling and it, how big was significant? At the time, I think it was €150 Euros. and when you take into account that my biggest bet up to that point might have been 20 or 30 up to yeah. 12 years ago. So that just proved to me that what they tell you in treatment centres is that an addiction stays with you forever and it constantly grows and manifests inside you. That just proved it to me because everything I did was constantly bigger and the risks I took were bigger and the stakes I was betting were bigger and everything just constantly grew. Yeah, Because people often think of uh, someone who ends up in trouble with gambling, that they're gambling, you know, a thousand euro, two thousand euro, that kind of thing, not a hundred and fifty euro. It's the amount of hundred and fifty euros. And in my case, that would have been what I could have afforded to do or thought I could do at the time but it's all relevant it doesn't matter 
if you're on the dole and you're earning 200 quid a week and you gamble a fair chunk of that, yeah. you have a problem. If you're earning 200 grand a year and you, you know, it's, it's, it's all relevant. It's, it's not actually the amounts that you gamble. It's the volume. It's the repeated and it's practice. the proportion it's of proportion of your your money that you have to live on that you're and it's your ability wandering and it's your ability to say no and it's your ability to control it and I can't you know now then obviously you got into trouble again because you yeah. ended up serving time behind bars what happened eventually I had after that first relapse I went gambling for about seven years and things got really bad. And in 2010, I found myself in the exact same position I found myself in in 1991, where I was in court and I needed a letter. And I went back into that same treatment centre 19 years later and I did the exact same thing. I got the letter. I got a clap on the back from a judge telling me how good I was. And I went out there and I didn't bet for nearly five years. And life circumstances went wrong for me around the end of 2013-14 and I didn't handle that well. And I just let myself go. And with, by, the, by the start of 2015, I was back to back to square one. So even though you had two experiences of narrowly missing being jailed, yeah. and you didn't learn the lesson? No. And it's not, a matter, it, it's not a matter of not learning the lesson. I couldn't learn the lesson because gambling had that much of a grip on me. And I can't explain how, I can't stress enough how much of a grip it had on me from 2015 to 2019 in that period and that was purely down to online gambling because that was a whole new thing then. And that's and 24 hours a day. That's different league. That's different league. I And I mention it in the book and in other interviews, I'd be in bed at four o'clock in the morning with iPads, phones, laptops, all on the go at the same time. I wasn't living any quality of life. I had no life. You know, my my whole existence was wake up, eat, gamble, lose, con money, binge eat and maybe get an hour or two of sleep. That was my whole existence. It's it's an utterly miserable existence but but yet this compulsion. I mean, we always hoping for the big win. Was that the the, the dream? Yeah, that was the the dream Um, but after a while the realisation comes to you that that's not going to happen but it still doesn't stop you and it's been proven as well that Compulsive gamblers, um, I use that term and not problem, it's just old school mm. thing, but you you get as much of a hit or a buzz from the loss than you do the win. And chasing the losses can become an, an infatuation too. And I, the way I handled it was just to lock myself away at home. Like when I got locked up in October 2020, I was 29 and a half stone going into prison. I was morbidly obese and that was purely down to my behaviours and binge eating out of depression so the knock on effect of that was yeah. was horrific um, What sort of extremes did you go to to get money? Who did you con? Who did you steal from? I stole from electronics companies that I would have given cock and bull stories to to get mobile phones that I knew I could sell to the cheap mobile phone shops I came up with scams to sell pretended that I had match tickets for Rugby World Cups and things like that and I got money from rugby clubs that I, I wasn't able to get them to the tickets for. And then there was a whole host of smaller scams over the years where I would have just told lies to people um, about cars being broken into or whatever and they'd lend you money. And, you know, again, all 
justified to me by the fact that I was genuinely thinking I'd be able to pay them back and I couldn't. And I did it, a lot of it, and I have to be honest about this, I did a lot of it without remorse at the time, you know, and it was only when I went into prison and I worked with a particular counsellor in prison that I learned about my behaviour, about, about where, it, where it came from with mm. childhood issues and where it came from with the effects that I was having on people that I stole from and the effects that I was having on people like my family and my friends. These were things that I never saw before. And when I sat down to write this book and when I was working with the counsellor and she, she made me look at these things, that didn't sit well with me. Yeah, You had been so self-centred that you didn't see other people's pain. No, not at all. You can just see your own and your own aspirations and you justify things to yourself to get by. Um, what were the particular charges that resulted you with the prison sentence? The prison sentence I got was for matched rugby match tickets, um, the, one of the rugby club uh, scams. And then while I was in prison, I was charged with the electronics thing where I got the phones. And um, there was a couple of those charges there. So those were what I was ultimately sent But there could have been many more if people had pursued you. If I hadn't repaid them, yeah. And, you know, yeah. Now, in prison, um, you know, you grow up in a respectable family, no expectation that one of the family members will end up in the slammer. No. What was that like, just for you, first of all, and then for those around you and close to you? For those around me and close to me, I'm sure it was hell, you know. I mean, there was the the, the embarrassment, there was worry for me. Um, my friends would have to constantly justify me to people that they met who'd have a go at me, Why, you know. And they stood by me for, Jesus, over 35 years. I don't know why to this day, but they still do. Um, from my own perspective... It was a massive sense of relief when I finally did go to prison because I knew it was an inevitability. It was something that was there for me. It was hanging the, over you all the time. All those years. And I knew that there was, I knew that someday I was going to end up there. And what was the, the, the prison life like? Now, I'm, I'm not thinking that your life outside prison was that great. Locked in a room, surrounded by laptops and electronics and binge eating not, uh, you know, not a very attractive lifestyle, but still, to lose your liberty is yeah, a big deal. It is, and it came at a particularly bad time insofar as we were right in the middle of COVID. And prison, like everywhere, didn't quite know how to deal with the COVID outbreak. So we spent a lot of time in 24-7 quarantine. Like, I would have spent large chunks of time in a cell by myself with no contact with anybody. But I can't complain because without being dramatic, prison saved my life, you know, in, in so many ways because I developed I, I developed an attitude in prison where I was going to finally try and do something about myself. I did something about my weight. I got a college degree, I got a university degree while I was in there. They, those are two things that I would never, ever have done. And I have no doubt today, and I can say this hand on heart, that I'd be dead now because the way I was eating... I was candidate for a heart attack and the morning I walked to prison or to, to, to court to go to prison, I just looked in over the bridge and the river looked appealing to me and that's the way my life was heading. Did you feel sorry for yourself at all in prison? I mean, you know, I don't know what your 
uh, cellmates or blockmates were like in they were, prison? They were, they were fine, you know, they're a mixed bunch of people, each with their own problems. Um, in prison, you look after yourself. Um, everything else becomes secondary. And, you know, contrary to what you might see in here, it's not that bad. You know, I, you, you mind your own business in prison, you won't have any problems. And that's what I, that's what I did. You did your porridge and out. Yeah. And, and I got involved in things in prison. I got heavily involved in education. I, you know, I, I worked in, I worked in libraries. I helped guys with literacy problems and reading and writing, that sort of stuff. Um, and prison, prison was very, very good to me in, in many ways. What kind of uh, rehab did you get in prison? Was there any course to help you with your addiction? Unfortunately, there isn't at the moment. There, there was a counsellor, an addiction counsellor that I saw. But again, th- there just isn't enough of it there at the moment. I mean, 95% of people that go to prison are there because of an addiction problem of some sort. And unfortunately the resources just don't seem to be there to, to look after this on, on the kind of levels that it needs to be looked after. Um, I was lucky. I went into prison. I suppose I wasn't affiliated to gangs. I didn't have to make a name for myself when I went into prison. I was able to just concentrate on my own thing and do my own thing. Um, and I had to fight for what I got in prison. You know, I had to, to fight for it myself, which I did. Um but yeah, and again, I can only speak from my own experience in there, but I went in with the intention of cleaning house, as it were, and I did. Um, but you did relapse before, so what mental place are you in right now and going forward? Now I'm in a good mental place, but I'm apprehensive. And the one thing that I have learned is that I can never say never again. You know, whereas before when I was on those two periods of long abstinence, I was able to say, right, I'm never going to gamble again or I can control it or I can do this. I can't look you in the eye and tell you that I won't. I can't. I know that today I can't or today I probably won't. And that's how I live now. It's And do you still attend Gamblers Anonymous and and get those kind of supports? I do. Um, years ago I interviewed a man who was a, a compulsive gambler and his story was horrifying to me that, you know, he lied to his family. He was going into town to buy a pair of shoes for his little daughter and instead he spent the money in the, the bookies and went home and told his wife that, uh, um, you know, that the shoes weren't available or whatever. He said he'd no money left. And the daughter piped up and said, oh, yes, you did, Daddy. I saw all your money. And he beat her for saying that. I've never forgotten that story. And he was so remorseful for the rest of his life, but he went on to become a different kind of addict. He became addicted to work. So I'm wondering, you know, if you have an addictive personality, how do you channel that these days? These days I'm, I'm working around the environment that I was in in prison and stuff like that. I'm doing some work with an organization called Spare and Nua which is run by an ex-prisoner called Damien Quinn. He was actually here last week himself doing an interview. Um, Damien advocates for prisoners with criminal records to get employment because of the difficulties and the obstacles that are there. So I work with him on projects and I also work with an organisation in Limerick called Bedford Row, which is a charity that works with families of prisoners. So I'm able to share my experiences and my my future is going to be around my lived experience. You know, I, I'm kidding myself if I think I'm able to go back into the corporate world working because I'm not. It's just not what I, it's just not 
and, and, and certainly having written a book which describes your life, it might be a brave employer who take you on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I have no expectations. Um, the, the book is called 100 to 1, uh, based on 100 convictions, 1 million euro, and it's uh, your story. Um, I found it a fascinating read, um, but then I'm not a, a gambler. I'm not trying to, you know, get better. Do you think if people who suffer like yourself from that compulsion, were they to read this, would this book help them? I would like to think that it would shock them into maybe thinking about their own behaviours if they are gambling and to take a serious look at the consequences of what way your life can end up. And whatever about your own life, maybe have a look at those that you affect indirectly by your actions. Not every gambler, not every compulsive gambler is going to go down the paths I went down, you know, but that still doesn't mean that it won't be a massive problem, you know. And others have done far worse. They've lost the family home. Yeah. In big yeah. time, you know, you, it might take you years to drink it. Yeah. But you can lose it. Weeks. Weeks yeah. gambling. Anyway, the book is called 100 to 1. It's published by Gill Books and its author, Pat Sheedy. Pat, thank you very much for joining us in the studio today. Thanks. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.